0: Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My name is Ian Dunt and today I'm talking to Rebecca Sykes, author of Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death and Art. It was just the, the second book that I read in my sort of foolish and I think internally contradictory idea of trying to read all about human history chronologically. And also the first book that started on the premise of everything I thought I knew about this subject was... Completely wrong. So, thanks for coming to talk to us, Becky, and for correcting. Well, I presume I'm not the only person to have these assumptions about Neanderthals, every single one of which is wrong.
1: <laughs> Thank you for having me. But, um, well, it's easy as an archaeologist, you know. I know that I know the data, but yeah, it's it's been really nice actually that even archaeologists have said, you know, what I didn't know that. So, <laughs> oh,
0: wow. can you answer the question that I think is probably the most Google searched questions from Neanderthal? Just to get us started, which is, are Neanderthals human?
1: Absolutely. They are a kind of human. When you're dealing with fossil species, you've basically just got the bones. And now also we have some of the genetics. It's not like you can look at living creatures and see how they interact with each other. You know, so for a long time, the question was, well, could we actually interbreed with Neanderthals at all? The answer is definitely yes, we could. And actually, we shouldn't be surprised that we could interbreed with them, because we're really close to them in time. Our Last common ancestor with Neanderthals was no more than seven hundred thousand years ago, which sounds a lot, but in <laughs> terms of what we see with other animal species that interbreed, it's not at all. Polar bears and grizzly bears can interbreed, and other other creatures who are much more sort of further separated, they can do. So, in that sense, the division in terms of calling them a different species is because of the history of human evolution, where we first only had the fossils. And certainly the Antotyls do look different to us, not just in like a gross sort of overall look, but all across their body, there are little differences. Yet we certainly could interbreed with them. Um, so on, in that definition of a species, they are the same species as us. Really what we sort of talk about now in terms of how we discuss it as As researchers is that we are different populations of very closely related human forms I think Um, so we diverged from from the population that would become them as I say somewhere between 700 and maybe 550,000 years ago we went off on our path they went off on their path there was a little bit of interbreeding now and then but never enough that we physically started to you know morph into into one population so they were distinct but they I think for practical purposes yes they are another kind of human
0: there's I mean there's this sort of sense in that book that you're fighting these sort of assumptions that, that we have about the Anthos, not just from sort of lay people but also from people in that you know for over 100 years have been involved in the archaeology which comes sort of imbued with this sense of kind of kind of homo sapien superiority
1: there is something of a divide actually within archaeology of the people that do paleolithic so sort of pre the last ice age archaeology and that includes neanderthals and and sort of people that do later prehistory where they built impressive things like stonehenge or you know they Mm -hmm. eventually even started writing stuff so i think there is a little bit of a an idea that oh well people like me just deal with the monkey men but I'm I am yeah. <laughs> I hope that's reduced somewhat over the past couple of decades just because of the way what we can see in the archaeology has has really shifted that and that's that's exactly why I wanted to write the book is just to sort of synthesize all the amazing stuff that we actually can say about Neanderthals. Can
0: you talk to us about the Neanderthal brain? It's sort of about the same size or a bit larger than than the Homo sapien brain, but it's organised differently. Is that right?
1: The actual brain is really interesting. We know some of what their brain structure is like, um, basically from the cast shape on the inside of skulls. So if you have a fossil skull, you can tell the broad shape on the outside, but on the inside the brain itself kind of leaves sort of an impression where, as the skull is around it. And you can even see like where the blood vessels were and things like that. So that is what allows us to model what the real form of a Neanderthal brain looked like. We can't see the internal structure, obviously, but we can see that form and there are sort of there's actually some a couple of examples where the the brain itself was sort of fossilized basically so you can see the outer surface of it but what we can deduce from that is that some of the structures which are involved in sort of higher level things like processing cognitive ideas decision making and language those are a bit smaller in Neanderthals so although the general size of their brain is pretty much the same as ours possibly slightly larger in terms of the the capacity of the skull i'm talking about here Mm -hmm. but that might actually be because we may have more complete bodies of neanderthal males which will skew it slightly in the size sample if you compare it if you compare neanderthals to only living males then the difference is smaller so basically they're about the same I think that's an sort of uncontroversial uh, point but how their brains functioned is is the real question like if you have slightly different structure if you have different parts of their brains that look smaller or larger than ours does that actually mean that the functionality is what it would appear to be Or if we actually could stick one like in an MRI scanner and watch how their brain operated, perhaps it wouldn't be as different to ours as the structure might imply. So the answer is it's really complicated.
0: <laughs> I, think, I think that's going to be a recurring theme.
1: And, and um, that's why I look at the archaeology instead, because that tells us what they actually did.
0: Right. I'm going to stay off it just for, just for another question. And that's on whether they spoke. Now, I know we will probably never know whether they talked, whether they used verbal communication. But you suggest really that there's just no reason to think that they wouldn't have.
1: I think actually we can say they definitely did have verbal communication. I think depends what you mean by verbal communication if you're talking about sitting and chatting and having a podcast (laughs) um then yeah you know okay they don't have recording equipment but could they have a conversation like this that is what we don't know did Mm -hmm. they have some form of speech as in vocal communication that was relatively complicated that was part of their everyday life that contained Maybe social information and also information about the environment around them. I think that would be something most specialists would say. Yes, they did have that.
0: I should have been more. I should. I, yes, I. I, I should I be <laughs> someone who knows what they're talking about. I actually need to use much more specific language. So I say <laughs> there's there's nothing in the sort of breath control or the uh, range of hearing or what we can presume about the brain that would indicate that they were incapable of language
1: no absolutely i think what we can see from not even going into the archaeology and what that might suggest in terms of social organization and stuff but if we only look at the anatomy then i think where we are today compared to where we might have been 30 years ago it looks much more solid so it doesn't really seem as if they would have had problems in terms of um as you say like controlling their breath and things like this that was to do with the placement of sort of the spinal column and things like oh could they you know did they not have enough good control of their lungs we know they had massive lungs actually so they would have presumably had pretty impressive um voices but not necessarily to the extent that there's that crazy bbc reconstruction from i don't know 10 years ago that's all over YouTube, you can see there's some guy who's just sort of screaming and pretend to be an asshole. I, I really don't think, <laughs> I don't think it was like that. But yeah, I, I think the the capacity to produce speech is there. The voice box is not in a place, you know, the same as chimpanzees where they struggle to make a lot of the same sounds as us. That looks like it would be a relatively okay. And also recent research on the anatomy inside their ears, I think, has been really, really sort of a clincher for people in that it looks as if essentially, although the shape of their head is different, and that seems to have affected the shape of the the inner um the the middle and the inner ear in terms of the anatomy for Hearing things, it still seems to have adapted to be tuned into the same frequencies that our ears are, which is human speech. It's it's talking. That's what we are designed <laughs> to be able to hear mm. really well. Um, and it looks like Neanderthals are almost exactly, you know, the same sound frequencies. And and um there was some really cool recent modeling done that suggests, you know, that they could hear soft consonant sounds like a. T- that kind of sound, which is the sort of sound that's really important in face-to-face conversation because you can't hear that across a valley. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. not like a, a loud vowel sound. So overall, I think, yeah, they, they're definitely talking and it's important and it's a key part of everyday life. But the content of what they're communicating about is the big question.
0: I kind of had this image, I think, all my life when, when I imagined the sort of the work on stone, That you would see from sort of human ancestors that it was this quite brutal right let's smash this rock and then use it to hammer in the head of a deer or something actually the breadth of of sort of of product really that they were creating with stone and not just with stone but with, with wood and other materials is kind of astonishing
1: yeah i think that's one of the big shifts actually in archaeology that hasn't really made it outside of the discipline to, you know, to the broader public because we have found out a lot of really cool stuff about Neanderthals. You know, there's the genetic stuff 10 years ago that there was interbreeding with us. And then there's occasional things that come into the headlines like, oh, there's some painting on a cave wall or, you know, other stuff like that. But the intricacies of how they worked the everyday materials around them, particularly stone, that is quite hard to, to communicate. And so it doesn't tend to get into like sexy press releases and things like this. <laughs> but actually, as you say, it's, it's really impressive. We know that Neanderthals were basically really interested in material qualities and not just sort of the, the properties of different rocks, but as you say, the different sorts of products they could get out of their stone. And they are highly focused and systematic in the way they do it. They have many different ways of actually taking stone apart, what we call napping. So that's with a K. Always, what we see is that they are really quite focused on economy. You know, they're not generally very wasteful. They have a really good idea in their head of the sort of product they want. Is it something that you're going to use um, and then just chuck or is it something actually you want to take with you and be able to resharpen and those different sort of needs they anticipate that and they take it into consideration and the whole thing is sort of just full of diversity and flexibility and creativity and it's not the image as you say of Neanderthals at all as sort of just bashing stuff and doing the same old thing for like 300,000 years that's totally not what we see now.
0: We're about to go into the world of potentially uh, even more heavily, I think, because there is an extraordinary passage in your book. Tell me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, about um, a site called Bruniquel? Uh,
1: Bruniquel.
0: (laughs) Right, right, yeah. (laughs) You absolutely smashed the shit out of me on that one. Yes, okay. Which uh, I want, because I'm a journalist, what, what, what I'm obviously raring to say is that there is a possibility that it is the first site that we have, which looks like it could conceivably be something like a place for sort of human spirituality or human religion can you can you you're going to tell me that, that I'm going way above what, what anyone <laughs> could safely conclude I know that I know that I can't help it can you talk about the site and, and what it looks like and, and why it's so special
1: well it is really special and I think it's not wrong to say that when this site was published only like two three years ago now sort of most people who work on the Neanderthals were just like what, you know, <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> um So, yeah, it is one of those jaw dropping sites, even for us. It's a cave in the south of France and it is about 300 metres deep inside a hill. So, it's not the kind of place where we normally see the antilles living, which is in shallow caves or cave mouths. It's really deep inside. It's this chamber and Essentially, it contains two rings made of snapped off broken uh, stalagmite pieces and they have been broken off, snapped off um, systematically, selected by size and then formed into two very large rings in this big chamber with piles of these things inside them. So a couple of piles and moreover, there's burning on the surfaces some of the burning might have been actually to help them break and snap the stalagmites but it doesn't all sort of look as if it's to do with that there's also a little bit of burnt bone here and there including a bear so this is very weird it's not a living site it's way too far in the cave it would have been completely dark all the time without some sort of illumination and yet there are these circular structures they don't look like sort of any sort of little house or you know nothing like that and the age was the big thing as well. This is this has been well dated by methods that actually directly date when those stalagmite uh, objects were sort of snapped. And that's because flowstone's gone over it later and you can date the relative ages. And it comes out 174,000 years ago, which is kind of halfway <laughs> in, in the realm of the Neanderthals. And um, so they sort of emerge about 350,000 years ago. So it's sort of halfway, but it's still immensely old. This is not just like heaps of rock that have been shoved together into circles. If you zoom in and look at the structure of them, you can see things that have been stacked sort of in rows and even inside some of the sections of the rings, you can see like a vertical bit with a little horizontal bit balanced on top of it and then another bit on top of that. So it really is a construction, but we have no clue what it's for. what it's about the motivation it is i mean archaeologists tend to get a little bit prickly when people like oh it's a mystery you know like especially about stonehenge because we we know a hell of a lot about stonehenge actually but in this case yes it is a mystery we don't know what the purpose of this was what was motivating them and if you calculate like the amount of time it would have taken to to move this like tons of stuff it would have been hours and hours Deep inside this cave, we don't know what is going on. Um, But yeah, I personally, I think it is interesting because it fits into a lot of other sort of patterns that we see in terms of how Neanderthals engage with materials. But then we also have this whole other side where it seems like there's an aesthetic interest in materials, in the alteration of substances, in putting pigment on surfaces, in in incising lines on things none of which has like a clear functional purpose. And so perhaps this construction in a cave is some other expression of an aesthetic. What the precise meaning to those who made it was, we don't know at all.
0: I suppose because, you know, when you look at the sort of the, the caves you see from Homo sapiens, very, very old caves with, with sort of paintings on them, and we instinctively think that it has a spiritual element to it is is there something that stops us from saying that about this site except for the fact that there's obviously no evidence for it at all <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> but I mean that that's what's really interesting though because it's a little bit like why I use the word aesthetic rather than art I guess spiritual motivations when we talk about those we usually mean it for human society in a social context where you have some sort of pre-existing structure in terms yeah. of the agreed meanings for what that spiritual thing is. But actually, what is spirituality except an emotional engagement with the world in an embodied way? You know, it's actually about your physical response to something because your physical body is the basis for your emotions just as much as your as your brain is. You know, there's an interacting system. And so we can see, for example, things that other animals do that seem to be actually just them expressing an emotional response. For example, people have mentioned for a long time um, that some chimpanzee groups seem to respond in a really emotional way to storms or rain or waterfalls. That is a sort of spiritual response in the sense that it's it's your brain processing the aesthetic experience of the world around you in a way that that is giving you a heightened ecstatic response in a sense we have to look for something like that as the origin for human spirituality in a, in our own species that's that's kind of what you know religion is really aiming for it's a transcendence isn't it out of the the everyday into some sort of greater emotional feeling of, of connection with the material world, but you then give it a framework in human society of having this nature versus the spiritual realm. But that is not how all human societies understand how their cosmologies work. It's much more nature is itself the experience and say I don't know (laughs) that's my answer
0: (laughs) we know now that there was interbreeding between homo sapiens and and neanderthals I went into it presuming exactly what many have presumed before that you just assume this very violent relationship and you assume much of that sexual contact might have been coercive rather than anything else in fact your book does a lot to go well there's no reason that we should presume that and there are some reasons to think the exact opposite
1: yeah, I mean this is one of the most interesting questions for me. Now that we have the genetic data which shows that there definitely was contact there's definitely was sex in some form with hybrid children who survived and it wasn't just Neanderthals and us Neanderthals we're also doing this with other hominin populations in Eurasia as well so in a group called the Denisovans we know that but yeah like why why has there been an assumption that this was based on conflict basically it's because for a long time It's tied into the paradigm that we have created for ourselves, which is that we exist today and the Neanderthals don't because we were somehow fundamentally better. We dominated the situation. We bashed them out the way or whatever, or we were superior. It's all, it's all based around this idea that doesn't fit very well with the idea of groups meeting and actually it being amicable or about curiosity and things like that. So I think that's why those ideas were not really pursued. And it was all much more, well, this was probably about fighting or rape or war or kidnap or whatever. And yes, there are models in primate society. For example, chimpanzees are quite well known for being pretty Uh, not fond of strangers you know they will attack other groups they actually have territories that they patrol they're quite scary really but they will just murder members of other groups however the very close relations of chimpanzees are bonobos and they are what used to be called pygmy chimpanzees they are much more open to relations with groups that they haven't met before they don't just immediately be like right fight you know that's not their vibe at all and that's probably because bonobo society itself is far less based in violent domination. They tend to sort their disputes out through shagging, <laughs> um, through sex. And, you know, it. that's not only it, but, but overall, the structure of their society is different. And that predisposes them, I think, to a different attitude to strangers. So my question in the book is, why are we taking the chimp model mm-hmm. as the baseline when we also see that our other very close relations bonobos don't do that and i don't think there is anything in the archaeological record that that says there definitely was loads of war or conflict we have zero evidence for that all we have evidence for is that people were having sex and at least some of the babies were being raised and surviving in whichever group they were in which implies some level of care And also that those hybrid children, going back to the language thing, were able to integrate into their society enough that they could then have their own children. Otherwise, we wouldn't see that DNA surviving in us today.
0: Yeah, I have to to say it is an an insanely fascinating book. And as as I think people will get as you're talking, the process of reading it isn't just about sort of discovering this thing that you didn't know that much about. It's also this kind of oddly internal process where you're sort of interrogating why you yourself had all these assumptions which are predominantly based on sort of conflict and warfare rather than rather than a broader sort of sense of the, the possibilities that are there in this sort of period you know beyond our comprehension uh, in history it, it's absolutely fascinating stuff and um, thank you so much for, for having a chat to me today I appreciate it hugely
1: oh thanks Ian it's been lovely
0: that's your Bunker Daily. We're back with more Monday to Thursday with a full panel on Tuesday and the new weekend edition on the weekend. Cheerio. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofraniewicz. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.